Hey, let's pray together. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we uh, come before you as your church, as your body. Father, as saints that have been entrusted with this message that has been carried from generation to generation in ways, God, that goes beyond our comprehension. And so, Father, as we prepare our hearts for your word today in these ancient truths, God, I pray that you would awaken us and revive us to a place where we would see them for what they are, that they would be more than, than just some story, more than just something we've heard before, God, but that they would invite us into your redemptive plan that you have structured, that you have offered and ushered into the course of human history from the very beginning. God, awaken our hearts and our souls to who you are and what you're doing in our midst. Father, we love you. We commit this time to you and to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the betrayal was unexpected. So there he sat, alone, and in prison, falsely accused. It was her word versus his. She was the one that had claimed that he was making all the advances. He was the one that had forced himself upon her. When in reality, it was the other way around. Day after day, she had persisted him, made the advances towards him, trying to seduce him, saying over and over again, come to bed with me. But he refused. Every step of the way, he refused because he knew that her husband was the reason he had experienced such good fortune in the midst of what had already been difficult circumstances. On this one day, they were alone, and she made one more advance, one more plea, come to bed with me. And again, he refused. And so as he was leaving, she screamed, and he ran out of the room, and others came to attend to her, and she told her side of the story, that it was his doing. He was there to force himself upon her. So, of course, they believed him, believed her. Her husband listened and with rage and with vengeance had him thrown in prison. And so there he was, falsely accused, alone, betrayed, and in prison. But what really stung was not so much the false accusation, but the betrayal that had led him there in the first place. The fact that he wasn't just a prisoner, he was a foreigner in a strange land. And why he was there even to begin with, it had happened when he was 17 years old. His father had come to him and said, go check on your brothers out in the field. And so he did. And he knew that there was tension between them, some discord, some, some unrest, some resentment. But he had no idea that those seeds of resentment had blossomed to the point where it was going to result in hostility and hatred. And so when he found them in the fields, he was shocked. He was appalled when they overtook him, threw him into the pit. And he laid there listening to them talk about killing him. He listened to their plans of how they would go about his murder and cover it up. And with each word, the knife of that betrayal dug deeper into his heart. Ultimately, they decided to spare his life. These merchants were passing by, and so they decided to sell him. 
selling them into slavery, into captivity, sealing their betrayal for pieces of silver. And so he was taken off as a captive, as a slave. Now the Lord had shown that he was still with him, brought him good fortune along the way. He ended up serving in the captain of the guard's estate. Everything he did was successful, so he was fortunate in that regard, but now this false accusation had taken everything from him. But it was really that betrayal that had happened in the beginning that hurt the most. But again, the Lord continued, even in this situation, to show him that he would be with him. He continued to be successful in the things that he did. He gained favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And so one day, he was entrusted with the care of these other prisoners. And he woke up and he saw that these prisoners were dejected, overcome with sadness. And he asked as to what was the cause for this state of affairs for them. And they explained to them that they had each had a dream, a dream on the same night, and they didn't understand it. It had brought concern, it was troubling to them, and they longed for an interpretation. And so Joseph told them, can't God interpret all things? Tell me these dreams. And he listened to the cupbearer, this representative of the wine, and the baker, a representative of the bread, share their dreams. And he offered an interpretation that was really <clears throat> pretty remarkable when you think about it. An interpretation that in three days' time, this representative of bread and wine would experience death and restoration. And it came to pass, just as he had said. Three days later, the baker, this representative of the bread, was executed while the cupbearer was brought to new life. And Joseph had begged the cupbearer, don't forget me. Remember me when you're before Pharaoh. Hoping that that would be his one chance to break out of this captivity. But again, betrayal. Forgotten. No mention of him. His name never coming out of the cupbearer's mouth. And so there he remains in prison, alone, foreigner betrayed, and he had to wait. It's hard to know exactly what he did in that waiting. I think it's safe to assume that it would be comparable to the experiences of any prisoner, that there would be days that were filled with unexpected hope and optimism, and days that were obviously filled with despair and helplessness. The common denominator for anyone that finds themselves in sort of captivity like that would be that you have no choice but to wait. So how did he navigate that waiting? Perhaps it was there when he had all this time to reflect that he looked back on this ancestral past, stories that he had probably heard when he was younger of how those that had gone before him also had to learn what it meant to wait. Stories of his great-grandfather, grandfather, and even his own father. How there were these moments where God was offering some level of hope, some level of promise, but only to find that you had to wait for it to come to fruition. But the real promise had begun with his great-grandfather, Abram. They always listened to that story with eagerness and excitement when the Lord revealed himself to Abraham, saying, go to a land that I will show you. I will bless you make you into a great nation, and all peoples of the world will be blessed through you. 
This was the promise that brought eagerness and anticipation. It would tell this story with excitement. But it was often forgotten the details of how this promise would come into fruition. That for those that listened carefully to the story, when it came time for God to seal this promise with a covenant, he spoke to Abram, saying, go gather a heifer, a goat, a ram, a pigeon, a dove, these, these elements of sacrifice, and arrange them accordingly. And when Abram began to put them in their place, he fell into a deep, dark sleep. And it was there the details of this promise came to light. The Lord said, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Here it was, Abram being on the cusp of this promise, most likely hearing this promise of blessing, wanting it to happen instantaneously, immediately. And yet here it was being sealed in this covenant with this word, wait. Wait for 400 years. In fact, this would be a promise you yourself wouldn't even fully see. And not only will you have to wait, you'll have to wait through suffering by being strangers, by being enslaved and mistreated. But it was no doubt that this theme of waiting became kind of a mark of their story. This became a mark of their existence. And they wondered how it would take place. How would this blessing emerge? How would this great nation be formed? There's no doubt that, that Sarah had expectations that perhaps she would be the one to get to have the child, but she too had to wait. She had expectations of at what age and in what capacity she would finally have a son. Those days were gone. Probably leaving herself to assume that this promise would be fulfilled in some other way, in some other capacity. The wait had been too long. And then they had those unexpected visitors come, and she overheard them say, to Abraham, this time next year, your wife will be with child, and she will have a son. It was so unbelievable, she laughed. She couldn't really allow herself to believe that this was possible. But it came to pass, just as they had said, and her wait had an end. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Isaac. Now, Isaac grew to an age of being ready to be married as well, and they didn't want him to take a wife of the foreigners among which they were living. So they sent a servant back to their homeland to find some woman that would be worthy of being called his wife. And this servant came back with Rebecca. And she too, she and Isaac, became brought into this promise, this hope that they too would now be the source of this blessing, that their descendants would become a great nation, but they also had to wait. It took some time, not in the way that they expected, not according to their plan, until finally Isaac prayed for Rebecca, and God heard and allowed her to conceive. And she had a very unexpected delivery, not of really just one son, but two. I'm sure Joseph heard many stories about his father and his uncle, how even from birth, 
they quarreled with one another. That their relationship was filled with hostility, deception, resentment, and turmoil. I'm sure that, that his father had told him about his uncle Esau and how quickly he just sold his birthright away for a meal. Or perhaps he confided in his sons about the time that he had help with his mother to deceive Esau and to steal the blessing that was intended for him. See, it was that betrayal that Jacob offered to Esau that led to their own resentment, their own hostility, and ultimately led to Jacob having to flee out of fear for his own safety, where he too had to go and find a land of his forgotten ancestors, these extended family members. And it was there he finally discovered Laban, who would take him in, give him a home, give him refuge, give him safety that he desired. And while he was there, he saw Laban's youngest daughter, Rachel, and immediately fell in love. He desired to have her as his wife. And so he went to Laban and he asked if he would allow her to marry him, to which Laban agreed, but with a cost. He said, yes, you can have my daughter in marriage, but first you must work for me for seven years. You must wait. There was again on the thrust of a promise, on the thrust of hope, but only through waiting. And so he did. For seven years, he faithfully worked for Laban until finally a time arrived where he could be given his daughter in marriage. And so on the, the way in which this happened through the customs and the practices of the day, it wasn't until the day after the wedding that Jacob realized that he had been deceived. The once deceiver was now the victim of a deception. He had not been given Rachel in marriage, but the older daughter, Leah. Enraged, incensed, he goes to Laban asking for an explanation. Why in the world would you do this after all that I've done worked for you for seven years? To which Laban explained, it's not our custom to give away the younger daughter before the oldest. You have to have Leah. Jacob pleaded, insisted that Rachel was the one that he loved, that he longed for her to be his wife. So Laban listened, and he came up with a plan. He said, okay, I will give you my youngest daughter in marriage as well, but only if you work for me another seven years. More waiting. Jacob agreed. He received Rachel in marriage, and then they worked for another seven years before they could finally become a family of their own. And in the midst of that waiting, <clears throat> the Lord saw that, that Jacob favored Rachel, loved her more, and so he blessed Leah. Leah bore many sons for Jacob, as did her servant and Leah's, Rachel's servant as well. But for Rachel, for Jacob, they too, just like the women before them, had to wait. Until finally, one day, God remembered Rachel and allowed her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. She named him Joseph. See, maybe it was stories like these that Joseph would reflect upon while he waited in prison. Stories that reminded him that when you get close to God's promises, they don't always unfold in the way that you expect, that sometimes you have to wait. But that if you Remain in that waiting, and you trust it, that at some point it will end, that that waiting will be over. 
And that was going to be true for Joseph as well. That waiting came to an end when Pharaoh had dreams of his own. He too was deeply disturbed by what he had seen. Overwhelmed with what it might mean, he desired some form of an interpretation. And it wasn't until then, two years later, that the cupbearer finally remembered. And he spoke to Pharaoh. He said, when I was in prison, I too had a dream. And there was a fellow prisoner there that told me everything about my dream. And it all came to be just as he said. And so Pharaoh sent for Joseph, had him brought into his presence. And when Joseph stood there before Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, is it true that you can interpret these dreams? To which Joseph replied, "I, I cannot, but God will give you the answers that you desire. And so Pharaoh began to explain the details of his dream, two different dreams that happened on different occasions. And as Joseph was listening to these dreams, he offered the interpretation, saying, what you have been shown is that There is something that is about to unfold, seven years of abundance, seven years of plenty, but only for them to be followed by seven years of famine. And the fact that you've had two dreams with the same meaning, the same message, is is a way for us to see the certainty with which this has been decided. And so with urgency, Joseph begged and pleaded with Pharaoh, "Put, put someone in charge, prepare for what is coming. Take a fifth of all the grain that you produce in these years of abundance so that you can survive the years of famine. Find someone wise, someone discerning that can help you in this matter. And as Pharaoh listened to Joseph's plan, it sounded good to him. And so he looked at Joseph and said, well, you've been given this knowledge. Who then is more wise? Who is more discerning than you? And so he put Joseph in charge, not just of this plan, but of everything in his palace, demanding that all the people submit to the orders of Joseph. And you would think it would be here, in this moment, that Joseph would finally feel vindicated, set free from his imprisonment, set free from captivity, and not just set free, but given unimaginable power, luxury. He was given a wife. He was given children, two children. And yet we find in the midst of all of this good fortune, it's not at all how he really felt. We see it in the naming of his second child, Ephraim, which means fruitful. So Joseph acknowledged the fruitfulness that God had allowed him to have. But when he explained the reason for this name, he said, we have named him Ephraim because God has allowed us to be fruitful in the land of my suffering." And it's there we realize that it didn't matter. No measure of power, no measure of luxury changed how he really felt. He was still a servant, still betrayed. He was living in a land of suffering. And you wonder how he made sense of it. How did he begin to understand the reason behind the suffering? Surely there were many moments in Joseph's life where he questioned God, began to doubt, began to to waver into the sense behind it all. Why would it unfold this way and in this measure? Seeking to understand. And perhaps it was in this season as he tried to navigate the waiting in the land of his suffering 
that he was reminded again of his ancestral past, that the only way you can survive the waiting in difficult circumstances is to believe. Was that not the main characteristic of his great-grandfather? Was that not what Abram was known for when this promise was offered to him, that he would be a great nation? It was before he had any children, any idea of how it would take place, when it would take place, if it would really take place. But Abram believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And about the testing of that belief, after all the waiting and Isaac was finally there, that moment when God spoke to Abraham and said, take your son, your one and only son, and sacrifice him to me. Imagine the anguish that Abraham felt. How irrational that seemed. The doubt that had to have been a part of his response. The questioning that was at play. And yet he made that journey to the mountain. Marched up that trail with his son. Reasoning that even God could raise him back from the dead. He believed. And so at just the right moment, at just the right time, God provided a ram in the bush. Maybe Joseph had heard stories from his own father's journey of how he too had to learn what it meant to really believe in the land of suffering. I'm sure that when Jacob had to leave his family because of his betrayal of Esau, he was shackled with regret, with remorse for what this was costing him why he had treated his brother in such a way. And there he was on his own. No certainty that he would survive, no certainty of where he would go, wondering where he would find food, where he would find shelter in the land of his own suffering. And it was in the midst of that journey that he laid down and he too had a dream. A dream of this stairway that descended from the sky to the horizon of the earth where he watched angels ascending and descending. And as he watched this incredible dream, he heard the word of the Lord speak to him, saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, and I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. The descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob woke up, he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey that I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, and the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. Jacob believed. In the midst of his own suffering, in the midst of all of the own, his own uncertainty, he believed. And so maybe this was what reminded Joseph how he too could navigate this land of suffering, that at some point it would make sense. At some point, he would get the clarity that he desired. He just needed to believe. And that clarity would come in the years of famine. For the plan had worked. 
Egypt had more than enough, having saved through the years of abundance. And the famine was so severe, it impacted the entire region, the entire world. People from all corners of the globe came to Egypt to purchase grain. And so the famine had impacted Joseph, Jacob, and his sons. And when they began to see that they too were struggling for survival, Jacob turned to his sons and said, I've heard that they are buying grain or selling grain in Egypt. Let me send you there so that we won't starve and die. But he wanted to hold back Benjamin, his youngest. See, Benjamin was the only other son from Rachel. Rachel, who had already died along the way. He had already lost one son from the wife that he loved. He couldn't lose another. So he sent the other ten sons to Egypt, holding Benjamin behind. And when these brothers arrived in Egypt to purchase the grain, they were brought into the presence of Joseph. And when Joseph walked into the room, they didn't recognize him. But he recognized them. And that betrayal... The anger, the hatred, the vengeance came seething back to the surface. He spoke harshly to them, refusing to give them the grain that they asked for. And now he brought the false accusations, accusing them to be spies, coming there to seek vulnerable parts of the country. And he threw them in prison and forced them to stay there for three days, a taste of their own medicine. And in that time, he concocted a plan, recognizing that not all the brothers were there. That Benjamin hadn't made the journey. Is there a way that he could get all of them back in his care? And so he, he returned to them, bringing them out and said, in order for me to test your answer, to know that it's true, to know that it's valid, I'm going to send you back and have you bring your brother back to me. But in order to ensure that you return, I'm going to keep one of you here. So he had Simeon bound shackled and thrown in prison in front of them and sent them on their way. So when these brothers returned to Jacob and shared all that had happened, Jacob was overcome with grief. Now he had a son held captive in Egypt. He'd already lost one in a devastating fashion many years before, and now there was a demand that he would have to surrender the safety of his youngest, the last son of the wife that he had loved. But he realized he had no choice. No option, no, no other way forward. And so he relented and agreed and he sent Benjamin on his way and he was overcome with grief. And he told his sons, you have to return. If you don't, surely it will bring ruin upon me and certain death. And so all the brothers returned for a second trip to Egypt, trying to save the brother that was still held captive. And when they arrived, they once again were brought into the presence of Joseph. He inquired of their father, asking if he was alive and still doing well. And in the midst of this exchange, he looked and he saw Benjamin. And it's hard to say what it was about that moment. Maybe it was the fact that Benjamin didn't have much of a role to play in the betrayal. Maybe it was the fact that he was his own flesh and blood. That he and Benjamin were the only ones that were born to Rachel. That after being a foreigner for so long, something familiar, someone he could identify with, but something about that moment overwhelmed him and he ran out of the room and he wept. And he realized in that state that he couldn't allow Benjamin to leave. 
something too strong about his need for Benjamin to stay. And so he came up with one more plan, another way to exact his revenge. He told his servants to plant a silver cup in the youngest one's bag, send them on their journey. And as the brothers had departed, he sent his servants after them. And when they caught up, they accused them of stealing, to which all the brothers denied. Why, why would we do such a thing? But they were ushered back to Egypt and once again accused of stealing and demanded that all their bags be searched. And as they went through the search, one by one, there in the youngest one's bag was this silver cup that Joseph had planted. And so Joseph offered his verdict. Clearly, he's the one responsible for this theft. He must stay behind and forever be my servant, our slave here. But the rest of you can go. And hearing this decision, knowing what this was going to mean for their father, the brothers were overcome with anguish. So Judah stood up and begged and pleaded with Joseph, don't do this, you don't understand. He's the last son that our father has from the wife that he loved. He's already lost one son, he can't lose another. If he does, this will mean certain ruin and certain death for our father. Judah pleaded, take me instead. And it was there in that moment that Joseph faced a critical choice. How would he handle this betrayal that had caused so much suffering? How would he really respond? And maybe it was there in that moment that he once again was reminded of a story from his father's past and how he handled betrayal. See, Jacob had been shackled with the weight of regret because he was the one that had deceived. He was the one that had betrayed his brother. And he knew he couldn't run forever. Knew he was at some point going to have to face the consequences for his actions. So after many years of waiting, many years of trusting and believing, knowing that he was unworthy to even try to return, he set out with his family and he sent word ahead of him to tell Esau that he was on his way back. And when the messengers came back to Jacob, they said, Esau has risen with 400 men and is coming to meet you. Great fear overcame Jacob. He knew what that meant, that the revenge was coming, the hostility, the hatred, the anger for him stealing the birthright, for stealing the blessing, all of it was going to finally be paid back to him. So in great fear, he began to plan accordingly. He divided everything he owned, even his family, into two different groups, thinking if one was attacked, at least the others would survive. He sent gifts on ahead of him, hoping that these would somehow appease his brother alleviate the anger that he must have felt. But in his heart, he knew there was probably no other way around facing this revenge. And so in that night, he slept restlessly, wrestling even with God. And then he awoke. And in the distance, he saw Esau coming with the 400 men. It was time for him to face the consequence for his betrayal. And so he went out ahead of them, bowing down over and over again seven different times to show his submission, preparing for the inevitable. But Esau ran to him. He embraced him. And he brought him close. 
In that moment, Jacob realized he was not being met with revenge, but with unexpected grace. Forgiveness. Love. And they wept. There's no doubt that that moment forever changed Jacob. That he had probably taught to his children that the only way you really overcome the weight and the bondage of betrayal is not through revenge, but through grace. And so maybe this is what was stirring in Joseph's heart as he listened to Judah's plea. And overcome with emotion, he sent all of the servants out of the room and kept his brothers behind. And when everyone had gone, he finally revealed himself, saying, I am Joseph, I'm your brother. And shocked, perplexed by by what was unfolding before them, they didn't know how to respond. They too anticipating, is this the moment that he brings about his revenge? Consider his power, consider what he can do to us. But Joseph didn't bring revenge, he brought unexpected grace. And it was there in that moment, in the midst of that grace, where all the waiting, all the believing finally made sense. And he assured them, he explained to them, no, listen, what you intended for evil, God used for good, for he brought me here that I might save the lives of many. Now go, bring our father back. Live here under my care. So the brothers returned to Jacob with this good news. Jacob's spirit was revived as he realized the son he thought was dead was in fact alive. It was a remarkable story. The story of a young man betrayed for pieces of silver, falsely accused and held captive, predicting that in three days' time there would be both death and restoration, that this would be a son who was thought to be dead but actually was alive, that he lived through a land of suffering that he might save the lives of many. A remarkable story. The reality was, is it was just the beginning, just the genesis of what was about to unfold. In fact, what it was leading into, what it was foreshadowing was an even greater suffering, an even greater persecution, an even greater exodus, a greater rescue. And so as we listen to this this morning, I'm curious. What's your story? What journey are you on? What set of unexpected circumstances do you face? What relationships in your life need healing? What land of suffering and hardship are you trying to endure? What rescue do you need? There are many lessons in the stories of the patriarchs. Maybe the word for you today is wait. Maybe you've expected things to go a different way. You've seen God's promise. You've thought it would look 
like this, only to discover something completely different. Maybe that's brought confusion. Maybe that's brought anxiety. Maybe that's brought frustration. And what you need to be reminded of today is just wait. Things don't always unfold like we think. But God's ways are higher than our own. His plan is good, even when we can't see it. But maybe the word for you today is believe. Maybe some of you here today have gone through your own land of suffering. You've gone through your own wounds, your own struggles, your own hardship, your own captivity. And it's left its wounds upon you to the point where you have questioned, you've doubted. God has seemed irrational, unloving, unkind, unfair. So as a result, he's distant, and you listen to these stories, and they sound fictitious. Maybe what you need today is to hear God's whisper one more time, to bring you in close, and to hear him say, just believe. Maybe what you need is grace. Maybe some of us are in here today, and we've been wounded by unimaginable betrayal. We've been wronged by people we love. We've been victims of injustice. We've been hurt by people we didn't expect to be hurt by, been abandoned, neglected. And so as a result, we carry the weight of that betrayal. We feel its wounds in our lives carry resentment, we hold grudges. Maybe what you really need is to offer grace. Or maybe we're the ones that have wronged someone. We were the deceiver. We were the ones that did the unthinkable. And now we carry the remorse, we carry the regret. And we're held shackled to its bonds as well. Maybe you need to seek grace. And the reality is, is whether you need to extend it or receive it, the only way we truly experience it is when all of us fall on our knees and confess our need to be rescued and to experience his unexpected grace in our life. There are many lessons to be learned from these stories for us today, but there's one common theme we can't neglect. It's a theme of rescue. It's a message of salvation. And it's a message that we need to embrace this morning. This is not a story that was confined to a particular moment and a particular time that we just get to reflect upon. God was doing something revealing something through the course of human history. And that salvation rings out even today. God was beginning to reveal himself in remarkable ways. And this theme of salvation has continued to point to a similar story. 
The story of a savior who would be betrayed for pieces of silver. A story of a savior who would be falsely accused and held captive. But in three days time, would survive execution, be resurrected to new life. This story of a savior who is a son who was thought to be dead, but is now brought about with the good news that he is alive. This story of a man who went through a land of suffering that he might save the lives of many. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the fulfillment of this blessing, and he offers it to you. You just need to wait and believe and be lost in his unexpected grace. Let me assure you, church, you and me, we are sons and daughters of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. May we wait, may we believe, and be recipients and ambassadors of his unexpected grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's impossible to do these stories justice. Even using the word story seems to fall short. And so God, I pray that in whatever measure is possible, you would awaken our hearts today to what these stories mean for each and every one of us. God, that the promises that you have been whispering into the hearts of humanity from generation to generation, would ring deep within our own hearts and our own souls today. God, that this promise of blessing, this promise of hope, this promise of redemption and salvation, God, would meet us exactly where we are. For those that are here today that need to learn what it means to wait, God, give them strength, give them resolve. For those, Father, who continue to struggle with doubts and concerns, God, help us in our unbelief. God, for those that need to experience your amazing, miraculous, unexpected grace, let us be undone. And through that grace, God, may our life navigate this land of unexpected circumstances where it doesn't always make sense to us, but we'll live a life of trust. We will look to our Jesus. We will look to our King. We will look to this salvation that is offered. And we will wait as those who wait with hope. We will believe with a faith that is unmoved. We will sing of this grace that the world would hear. We love you, Father. We trust in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.